While you're turning to Acts chapter 15, we're going to kind of put in mid-chapter today, um, kind of mid-story. On October 29th of 1991, a very large and very powerful low-pressure system was sitting off of the coast of Nova Scotia and the northeast United States, about 150 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. It was so powerful and so unusual that it actually spawned water cyclones, which is very unusual in the North Atlantic. Well, just north of that, there was a high-pressure ridge that was pushing that system southward. And at the same time, there was some unusually warm tropical water being pushed up the east coast by the Gulf Stream. And when these two collided, first of all, it became a subtropical cyclone. Then it turned into a tropical storm. And then for some reason, this system moved back out into the Atlantic and then swept down the East Coast again. And on November 1st, it became a full-fledged hurricane. And the collision of these two things that made the, the worst hurricane that was actually out in the North Atlantic ever on record became known as the perfect storm. And it gave the name to the movie where the boat and the crew and all of that was lost. There was two components of this perfect storm that it seemed like that they were custom made to evoke and provoke the very worst out of the other one. Low pressure system here and warm water here colliding to turn into the perfect storm. Well, the components of another perfect storm we're going to look at today were on a collision course in the church in Antioch. Now, by the preaching of the gospel in Antioch, Jews and Gentiles had been converted there. And the Jews were coming out of a culture of 1,500 years Think about this. Our country is maybe, what, 230 years old, something like that, 230? 1,500 years of tradition of Moses and circumcision and the law. Now, that's the Jews. The Gentiles that, were, had, that had been converted through the preaching of the gospel were coming into this church out of a culture that was saturated with paganism. And here they were in one church. Now, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time remarking on the fact that the Jews loathed Gentiles as a rule because they, they, they thought that the, the things that they did were, were, were unclean. And, you know, really, it's the way that you'd look at somebody that, you know, or, or, or the way you shouldn't, but the way that you might look at somebody you just think is filthy and the way that you might talk. They were so hate-filled about the Gentiles, that they that Jews considered even dirt that Gentiles had walked on was defiled and had to be brushed off of their feet before they could do their religious things. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, 
thought about the Jews pretty much the same way. They, they lived in their own culture. They stayed away from Gentiles. Their arrogance about their own rituals and, and, and things like that and, and their culture and in their religion and all that kind of stuff separated them. And besides that, they refused to bow the knee to the, you know, the, the governing authorities and like that. They were just troublesome. Actually, anti-Semitism has been called the oldest hatred in history. So you have these two coming together in one church. <laughs> Get your mind around that, right? Coming together, these two. I mean, the book the book that we're looking at today is called the Acts, and sometimes it's called the Acts of the Apostles. I prefer to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because if you stop and think about it, if you're going to make a church, right, for the worship of God, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't start with two things that are kind of the same stripe. He gets this and this and brings them together. How about that? How's that going to work out? Well, it had all the elements of a collision and of a perfect storm. And well, this Category 5 storm that could happen as a result of these things coming together could have sucked the life out of these fledgling churches, the Antioch church being one, and sucked the life out of their gospel message. Well, the apostles and the elders up the coast in Jerusalem, or up, up north in Jer- south in Jerusalem, but up the hill in Jerusalem, uh, notice these um, storm clouds gathering. And they wrote a letter. They made some decisions about some of the things that were issues that we'll look into in a minute. They wrote a letter that focused on gospel essentials. Gospel essentials that turned everything around. The whole situation took a 180. And so here's what's in it for us, is what we're going to look at today. If the application of gospel grace that the apostles and elders in Jerusalem settled on could overcome or turn around or reverse or neutralize or turn into something good, what was going on with this gathering storm? with this animosity and this suspicion and hatred that these people actually carried for each other. If that that could turn that around in that church, then those same gospel truths can turn around anything and any conflict that we face in ours. So that's what's in it for us. Because if if you allow your finger to go down to verse 31 here before we get to reading it, you just notice one thing. It says in verse 31, it says, when they read it, that's his letter, they, are, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Jews, Gentiles, along with whatever was in this letter, turned this perfect storm into joy. Into joy. Well, what was it that could t- turn suspicion and animosity into joy? It, there was something that good that happened. And the good thing that happened was that they got the gospel right. They got the gospel right. And this story teaches us that conflict turns to joy when we get the gospel right. When we get the gospel right. Now, to back up, because we're putting into this story about midstream, 
Paul and Barnabas had just come home from their first missionary journey about two years long, and they had reported to the church in Antioch about how Jews and Gentiles had all responded to the gospel, and, and they were being the same, saved the same ways, and the, the, some of the signs and wonders that, accompl- that accompanied the salvation of the Jews when the gospel was preached was also happening to the Gentiles. And so they're rejoicing about that. But no sooner had that happened than some Jews, it says, came down from Jerusalem. Kind of the suits, maybe the Philadelphia lawyers coming in and and saying, well, you have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Well, this caused quite a kerfuffle because that was not really the gospel that they'd been preaching. So so Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to consult with the elders and with the apostles about this. And so first, uh, the most Jewish Jew, Peter, confirmed that the Gentiles are saved in the same way as we are through grace. It says it in verse 11. Now he was drawing on his experience with Cornelius and the, and the sheet coming down with the unclean food and all of that and, 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 and going to Cornelius' home and seeing the work of the Holy Spirit and converting uh, Cornelius and his household, who were Gentiles, to the faith, to the gospel. So, so Peter stood up and spoke first, and then the apostle James basically said this. He said, you know, Peter, what you're saying, that God is going to draw into one people with one message, into one church, all of the Jews and Gentiles together. Not only that, but all the nations of the earth. You know, all the Old Testament prophets say that too. They say the same thing. So James kind of did a kind of a shallow dive into the scriptures, but said that that's, that's what the prophets say. So having defended the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and in Jesus alone, the apostles and elders decide to address this conflict with a, an official letter to the Gentiles at Antioch. So let's go to verse 22 and put in where that, where that letter comes from. Verse 22, chapter 15, Acts. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your soul. That's the Philadelphia lawyers that came down from Jerusalem. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is kind of the meat of the letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And they all rejoiced because of its encouragement. So what had happened 
And what was happening in this perfect storm was Jews and the Gentiles each were distorting the gospel in their own way. The Jews' thinking went like this. Okay, although we are saved by grace, you got that? Although we're saved by grace, religious rituals and and, and obeying the law of Moses and somehow can still kind of commend us more to God to gain His approval. But the apostles and the elders confirmed that salvation is by grace through faith alone and that Jesus had fulfilled all of the law's requirements for us. Every believer, Jew or Gentile, is complete in Him. And while the Jews were thinking, although we're saved by grace, some of these works can commend us to God, the Jews, the Gentiles were thinking this way, because we're saved by grace, we're pretty much free from any obligation and can do basically as we please without respect to the sensitivity of our Jewish brothers. But the apostles and the elders had discerned that grace that saves obligates us to love our brothers and respect their consciences. Later, in developing this further, the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, he would say this, And Jesus died that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So here we have the perfect storm. Jews wanting to add to the law of the gospel, add law to the gospel of grace, and their Gentile brothers unconcerned that their association with idols was abhorrent to their Jewish brothers. They were getting the gospel wrong. The Jews doubted the sufficiency of the, of grace to save, grace alone. And the Gentiles were unaware that the grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies. The grace that brings us to God is the grace that leads us out of sin. I think um, Augustus Toplady, there's a name for you, <laughs> Augustus Toplady, uh, wrote a hymn for which he's probably the most famous, uh, I mean, the most famous hymn that he wrote in the late 1700s. It's called Rock of Ages. And I think he put his finger right on the point here. When in the first verse it says, Let the water and the blood from his wounded side, which flowed, be for sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The Jews and the Gentiles each had baggage that they brought to the church. Their past, their preferences, their own sense of right and wrong. And last week, uh, Pastor Brent reminded us, preaching the first part of this passage, to check our bags. But this letter addresses something else that we should all notice, and that is that everybody has bags. Now, wouldn't it be nice... If uh, next time you take a flight and you get off the airplane wherever you're going like that and you get onto wherever the baggage thing is like that and the only bags that come down the thing are yours. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? 
And sometimes in, in, in church, that's the way Christians look at it. They think that the only baggage that we're dealing with here is mine. But everybody has bags. And going back to the air, air, airplane thing, I, I think the church kind of needs to kind of get a hold of an airline mentality. Now, what I mean by that is when, when you get on an airplane, right, and everybody's loading on, everybody's bringing in bags, you know, and stuff like that. And, and there's, there's always this wispy girl that's about this tall, weighs about 60 pounds, and she's got a bag that's as big as a small car with, you know, water bottles and computers and stuff hanging off of it. But, but what you see in there is that, first of all, everybody knows they have their carry-ons. They recognize that. Everybody expects that other people are going to have baggage. Everybody accepts that everybody has baggage. And you know, as we're shuffling around and getting out of the seat because the other person got there first and the overhead bin's full and you got to... People are helping one another with their baggage. So here's how the apostles and elders applied the gospel to this conflict. It says, It seemed good, in verse 28 and 29, to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. So they said, We're not laying on you the law of Moses. You are saved by grace alone. But there was a burden. It says to abstain from idols and blood and things strangled and fornication. Now to us, okay, 2,000 years later, that sounds like just kind of a weird collection of things, right? But let's just suffice it to say, those were the very things, talking perfect storm here, the very things that were associated with pagan temple worship. And they were also the very things that were proscribed that were that were forbidden by the Jews to have anything to do with, and they they feared contamination by those things, and so they write for them to abstain from them. So, in a sentence or two, the Gentiles, on the one hand, are set free by grace through faith in Christ from the law, and by that same grace, they're obligated to lay down those freedoms and rights for the sake of their Jewish brothers. Now, we all know John 3.16, right? For God, I love that. I mean, I know we all do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's a great verse of deliverance from sin, the promise of eternal life. But do we know the other John 3.16? 1 John 3.16? We know love by this that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's 1 John 3.16. The gracious free gift of salvation, of salvation and the obligation of grace we have to lay down our lives right there together. This, this is getting the gospel right. So what happened when the gospel was applied to the conflict? Well, we already read that in verse 31, didn't we? When they read it, they all rejoiced, the Jew and Gentile both, because of its encouragement. Now, I looked at multiple translations, and the word is most often translated here, encouragement. My New American Standard, which is God's translation, uh, <laughs> has a little footnote there. Yeah, see, I've got some brethren out here, some, some faithful. Uh, so anyway, so the New American Standard has a footnote there. And there, and in the following verse there, both, it says, 
before the word encouragement, and it says exhortation. Now, encouragement can be nurture, it can be sympathy, it can be going along, you know, and kind of helping somebody through. But, 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 but encouragement itself is kind of directed to the person. But exhortation is really more directed and focused on the task, the challenge. And so what we see here is that they rejoice because of the exhortation to keep going on in the gospel. Keep running the race. Keep fighting the fight. Don't give up. This letter exhorted them to get the gospel right, and they rejoiced because it turned their focus away from their disputes and differences and onto the gospel. And for the Jewish believers, that meant letting go of works righteousness and not imposing it on their Gentile brothers. And for the Gentiles, it meant leaving their idolatry behind and obliging themselves not to stumble their brothers. John Stott has called this a double victory. I like that. It's like a home run, right? He said this. It's a double victory. It's a victory of truth in confirming the gospel of grace and a victory of love in preserving the fellowship. You know, the gospel invites us to lift our eyes to the big things, to the main things, our identity in Jesus Christ. We're not what we were. We're not Jew and Gentile anymore. Whatever you were before you came to Christ, you're not that now. The big things are death to self in Christ. Our unity with Christ and with other believers. And the grace to love and forgive. Now, the details of the conflicts that we get into and we so readily focus on are crushed. Crushed to smithereens by the weight of glorious gospel truth. Now, I think, you know, as we look back over the story, the apostles and the elders were not seeking to devise, you know, some kind of new truth for the situation, but only determine what God had said about it and what he'd already revealed and to apply it with grace. We see three times used in this passage here, it seemed good. You know, pastors, church leaders, are called on oftentimes to settle disputes, to untangle, you know, disputes and arguments and people getting sideways with each other. And the expectation is that, that the pastor is going to decide who's right and who's wrong. And strangely, it's always the other person that's wrong. But the pastor and the church leader's job is not to decide conflicts, but to lead folks to what God has already declared in the gospel and urge them to apply it with grace. So what perfect storms have showed up in your life? That conflict that seems custom designed to provoke the most destruction between you and your brother or sister. Some of you are going, I get it. 
Others are going, well, that's not me. But let me tell you what these conflicts sound like in your head. I hate it when they do that. Don't they know they shouldn't? It would be better off if they would. There it is again. Can't they see it? There's something wrong with them. And I know what it is. (laughs) If that's our thinking, we don't have a people problem. We have a gospel problem. We need to focus on the sufficiency of the gospel for that person. After all, the finished work of Jesus is enough to get the job done for them. We need to focus on the obligation of the gospel and the power of Jesus in us to enable us to lay down our freedoms and rights on behalf of our brothers. But if you're like me, you look at all this and you say, well, you know, I've tried this and I fail. I try to let grace and love determine my life, but my tank runs dry. And if we're honest, oftentimes we're disappointed and just out of gas. But the really good news is that the gospel is for people that are empty and know it. How, we think, can we ever get on top of this? How, where do I find the strength, the ability to live out these gospel truths? And I, and I think the question is really not how, but where. It's at the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Isaac Watts wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross. And he urges us to camp out there at the cross. And I've found that in my own life, when my tank is the driest, and it just seems like all of this Christian stuff just seems to be out there and there's no way to get there from here. It's because I haven't been spending time at the cross. Just doing touch and goes there, as it were. But watch uses the word survey when I survey. And you know, surveying takes time. Measuring considering from different angles, trying to get your arms and absorb the dimensions of the cross. Love so amazing, he says, so divine, demands, there you go, demands my soul, my life, my all. Go to the cross. Soak in it. Soak in all that Jesus has done for you at the cross. And stay there until you're humbled and broken and make it a point to go back often. Because if the gospel is anything, it's a love story and that's where it all starts. That's where it's all empowered. That's where it all grasps our lives. So we see from this passage that getting the gospel right boils down to two essentials. God's grace is sufficient. By faith in Jesus, we're made complete in Him. There's no hills to climb to gain God's approval. Jesus climbed that hill for us. It's called Calvary. And as He hung on the cross, He said, 
It is finished. Not. You take it from here. Then we can have lives that are motivated by gratitude and love in the finished work of Christ and not worried about what we need to do to gain God's acceptance and grant that same acceptance to our brothers and sisters. It's finished. The second thing is that grace obliges us and enables us to love our brothers. And sometimes it seems like an overwhelming task. Matter of fact, most of the time it is. It is all the time. Oswald Chambers noted that Jesus' demands often sound ruthless. Listen to this. Love one another. Love your enemies. Lay down your life. Take up your cross. They sound ruthless. But Jesus demands those of us because He knows what He has put in us. The very nature and the very life of God in the Holy Spirit. That's what's in us. That's why He demands it of us. We have that. That's the Gospel. And we need to believe it. The Bible says that we have three adversaries. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And somehow, these three things work in concert to move the weather or the, the frontal systems around in our lives and in the life of our church to bring about a perfect storm. But conflict is turned to joy when we get the gospel right. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank You for the gospel that's finished, that makes us complete. How we thank You, Lord, for the grace that enables us to walk out of sin, to walk in love towards our brothers. Thank You that You accomplished all of that. Help us to believe it and to walk in it. We thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.